Well, we've been talking about how precious is the knowledge of God. And one of the key verses in our study in 2 Peter is in chapter 1, verse 3. I think I've read this just about every time I've been preaching from 2 Peter. I'll read it to you again. It says, His, that is Jesus Christ's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so there's something special about the knowledge of God. It brings us into the glory and the excellence of God. And there's a sweetness and a goodness to that. And, 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 and as I read last week, um, Charles Spurgeon says, this is 1800 kind of language, so you'll have to translate a little bit. But he says, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. So the knowledge of God is is precious. And we have this precious opportunity to pursue God and to know Him more and more fully. All of life's problems get absorbed into a deeper more full knowledge of God. All of our purposes and our challenges, all the things that we would want and hunger for, get absorbed into knowledge of God. And so we have this great opportunity before us. Now, Peter goes on to say that the knowledge of God comes through the Scripture. Through the Scripture. Used an example last week. We were in Hawaii for our vacation. Uh, not something we often do, but my mom treated us to this great trip. And so we spent time snorkeling, of course, is what people do in Hawaii, one of the things. And uh, I used this illustration last week to compare and to think about what it is like to l- understand God through the Scripture. When you snorkel, there's two things going on. You, you have tremendous beauty that's before you, you have the opportunity to see. And there's also great danger in the sense that there are rocks and oftentimes there are sharp objects that you don't want to bump up against. And you put on the mask so that you can navigate all that, so you can see clearly, right? That's what the mask is for. Now, the Scripture, Calvin originally said this, he called it like a pair of glasses, the Scripture is like that mask that helps us to see clearly the world around us. And so we put on that mask so that we can understand and know what's going on. And and that's the the key that Peter's trying to say to us in this book is, look, put on the mask so that you can know God, so you you can explore the beauty and the depth and the riches of all that's there swimming deep and and swimming to new places and, and looking at all the wonder that God has and also being careful of the dangers that are present when you're swimming through the world. Now in the section that we've been looking at now, these last, last week and this week, there's a threat to that knowledge of God as provided for us through the Scripture. And that is coming in the form of false teachers who have come into the community that Peter is writing to and they've begun to teach things that don't come from the Scripture, things that come from their own speculation. And it's threatening to corrupt, to fog, to 
you know, somehow obfuscate their knowledge of God. So, one of the things that happens when you're snorkeling is great. You bump into something and you come up and your mask is all crooked, right? And it's really funny looking when that happens to the person you're snorkeling with. They come up and they can't see and the water's gotten in and, and their mask is all crooked. Well, well, well Peter's worried that that's what's going to happen to these uh, people that he's writing to, that their mask is going to get crooked and they're not going to have that precious opportunity to know God as fully because they won't be seeing as clearly, and he's writing in part to protect them from that eventuality. So, would you open with me to Second Peter, chapter two? If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Just raise your hand. Some of you may already receive one. Raise your hand. We'd love to give you a Bible because what you're going to see in here is going to be much more important than what I have to say. And we encourage you to, if you don't have a Bible, to take that Bible with you home. We want you to have that. You don't have to pay for it, just take it home, we want you to have access to it. Peter's writing in this section to protect the precious opportunity to know God, which comes through Scripture. Now let me give you a little context before I read this. We're going to be starting in chapter 2 and the second part of verse 10. Most likely in the Bible that you're looking at, there's a new paragraph that starts there. But i got to give you a little context of what's happening as Peter's writing. We're sort of jumping into the middle of what's already been uh, going on. And, and one of the things that, that you're going to see in this text as we read it is, is that something was happening. We don't know what the false teachers were teaching exactly, but something was happening with them with respect to the love feast, which is a common uh, form of worship for the early church. Uh, in the early days, they didn't just gather around a table like this and, and break bread uh, in this form, they actually had a meal together when they gathered in worship. And so they would eat and drink, and part of the remembering the Lord was, was part of that meal together. Well, it seems, as we cobble together what Peter is saying, it seems that they were, these false teachers were advocating and turning that love feast into sort of like a daytime party, like a real feast, like they were drinking and, and maybe getting drunk. And, and, and they were eating and, and focusing more on filling their bellies than on the spiritual side of what they were celebrating. And it even seems to be they were going so far as these false teachers who were coming in had eyes for the women who were part of this congregation, maybe women who were already married, uh, and these false teachers were coming in and they were preying on these women. And so um, this goes a long ways to explain now the intensity of the language that I'm about to read to you. I feel like when last week and this week, when I am reading this text, I have to, you know, warn you, kind of like before you watch a TV show, there are some graphic images, there's some intense language here, and so get ready for what Peter is about to say. But there's a reason, I mean, Peter's not just crazy, there's a reason that he uses this kind of intense language is because what's going on has to do with things where the stakes are very high. And he wants to protect the people that he's writing to. So look with me, in, starting in verse 10, the second part of verse 10, where that new paragraph begins. He's talking about these false teachers. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, 
before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Essentially, he's saying in that section that these false teachers dare to blaspheme in in ways that the angels, who are much greater beings, would never dare to do. Verse 13, suffering wrong uh, as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. We'll come back to him. Who loved game from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These, meaning these false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So people who have just come to faith and just beginning to grasp the glories and the wonders of God, these false teachers have come in and they're pulling them away from that path back into the old way. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, they've already tasted of the goodness of God, but if they taste of the goodness of God and then turn away, it's as if their rejection of God is confirmed even more fully than it otherwise would have been. Verse 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. Our dog does this. It's disgusting. And the sow, after pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Amen, right? You know, um, one of the things about preaching is you, 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 know, you have decisions to make. Do we skip these kinds of passages or do we dive right in with both feet? And I have found over and over again that diving in with both feet is the best way. And what it does is it takes us to places where we might not otherwise go in our thinking about God. We might naturally, not naturally Go there, and so while it's a large, a bigger challenge for the preacher, I relish these opportunities because the potential for the gospel to shine forth in its goodness and brightness, and for us to maybe learn things that we hadn't thought of or wouldn't think of, is 
sometimes greater. So bear, walk with me through this a little bit. I really want to just make two simple contrasts in this text. First of all, I want to say that speculation, uh, when it comes to the knowledge of God, speculation is a kind of a trap, all right? Speculation is a kind of a trap. And on the flip side, we're going to talk about revelation. Revelation is life and freedom, but we'll get to that in the second part. So first of all, speculation is a trap. One of the things we're entering into here, into here, one of the underlying conversations is, is how do we know things, in fact? How do we know what we know? The, the, the philosophers have a term for this. It's called epistemology, how you know what you know. Um, and most of us would say, and most of us are living in a culture that would affirm this, that the way that we know things is by reasoning through by applying logic to whatever circumstance or question is before us. The problem with reason, and we're finding this more and more, and more people have, have begun to discover this, the problem with reason is there's, there's, it's insufficient because the complexity of the world overwhelms our capacity to reason through all of the questions that are before us. And so we come to questions like, for example, how do relationships work? And, and while we can apply reason, we find so often that reason doesn't get us all the way there when we're trying to figure out how relationships work. There's something about relationships that's greater than simply our, our logical, rational mind. Or when it comes to the question of morality. How do we understand morality if our only tool is reason? We find insufficient capacity to get our minds around it if we only use reason. Or psychology, for example. What is the soul? Or is there even a soul in a human being? These are questions that seem to be larger than our ability to reason through. And so what happens to people when life is based, when, when, when the, the answer to the question, how you know, is, is just reason, what happens to people when they come to the end of their reason, and sometimes this is a shift that they do without realizing, is they begin to speculate on what must be or what is, on the nature of morality or the nature of the soul, if there is one, or the nature of relationships. Because reason doesn't get us there, then we have to speculate, and and a lot of people are doing this a lot more than they would care to admit. Speculating on the nature of the world and how things should work. Because reason hasn't been able to get us all the way there. Now there is one thing though that we can add to reason. As we seek to figure out this world around us. And that one thing is Revelation. Now, revelation and reason are not in contradiction. Revelation is, is God deciding to speak to us, revealing to us truth, knowledge of Him. And this is the Christian approach, is to, is to add to reason revelation. We, no, we not only reason through questions, we also seek God's revelation. And that revelation, first and foremost, is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why John calls Jesus Christ the Word of God. He's the revelation of God in the world, in a sense. And that revelation then is recorded 
and explained in the Scripture, which is also the Word of God, the revelation of God. And so we have reason. We don't get rid of reason. Christians are thoughtful, rational people. You look through history, you see that over and over again. Some of the most rational, thoughtful people have been Christians. So there's nothing in Christianity that would, that would take us away from reason. But, but to reason, we add revelation. That's the Christian way. And that revelation is in Scripture. But even so, when we get both of those together, we find that we're tempted at times to go back into speculation. Because sometimes we don't know the answer to a question we might have. And rather than seeking in Scripture, there's a little subtle shift that happens without without realizing we start to speculate on what must be. We let our desires guide the answers to the questions, the big questions of life, rather than letting the revelation of God shape how we think about the world. And and the trap of speculation is just that, is that it is so easily overtaken by our desires. See, when you speculate, speculate about the way the world is, it's easy to, to make the world what you want it to be. And that's the trap. And that's what the false teachers are doing. They seem to be coming in with a kind of a, a greediness at bottom. So they want to use the people, the church that they're coming into. And then they, they, they seem to have a desire for the sensual passions, probably influenced by Epicurean thought. And so they're teaching to say that these things are okay when what Peter is saying, the revelation of God, would speak in a different way about them. And so the people in this church are caught in this sort of crossfire of teaching. And, and, and Peter says it's like Balaam. Well, Balaam, do you remember the story of Balaam? Balaam uh, was a prophet of God, and Moab was a nation... Uh, near Israel who was fearful of Israel because they were getting great and, and powerful. And so Moab went to Balaam and said, would you come and curse Israel for us? Because we're afraid of who they're going to become. And Balaam said, well, I'll come, but I'm only going to say what God says and tells me to say. So Moab turned up the stakes a little bit. He said, well, we're going to pay you a lot of money, Balaam. We'll give you lots of gold and riches if you, if you curse them for us. And it seems to be that Balaam was enticed, enticed by that opportunity to speak something that would be good for him financially, even if it weren't true. And so he's on his way to do it, and he's on his donkeys riding to go and, and curse Uh, Israel for the Moabites and an angel comes and he doesn't see it but his donkey sees the angel and and three times the donkey tries to he tries to go and the donkey stops him in the middle and and says I won't go any further I mean doesn't say that yet Um, and he starts whipping the donkey and then finally the donkey turns in this incredible miraculous way in the Old Testament turns in this is in numbers turns to 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 Balaam and says look I've been your donkey for years and years and years, right? And you know, Balaam is sitting there going, first of all, you know, the donkey's talking, right? But the donkey's so reasonable and rational. 
I've been your donkey for years and years and years. I've served you for a long time. Uh, I, I, you know, what I'm saying here is this is the wrong way to go, and I'm protecting you from yourself, essentially, because if you go and teach what's not true, then you will be judged, essentially, is the communication that the donkey gives. And, and Balaam realizes what he's about to do, and, and, and he turns around, and, and he, he goes, but then he only speaks, so the Moabites pay him all this money to curse the Israelites, and every time he opens his mouth, he starts cursing them again, and saying how great and powerful are the Israelites, because he, he gets to that point where he's committed to speaking truth, and not what is going to be good for him. And so, so Peter says, that's like what these false teachers, they, they're, they, they're like Balaam on his way, and they need to be stopped by the donkey, the irrational donkey that God worked through to stop them from saying untruth. Only in this case, now the result of their speaking untruth is judgment. Judgment. Multiple times we see in this text the judgment of God on these false teachers. And, and there's an interesting thing about the way Peter talks about the judgment. He just sort of accepts it as matter of fact that, that false teachers will be judged. He doesn't seem to relish in their judgment personally, but he does, he is thankful for it in the sense that as a pastor, with a pastor's heart, he desperately wants his people to be protected. He wants the precious gift of knowledge to be protected. And so he wants to protect them from false teaching. And in that sense, he talks about judgment. I was thinking about the uh, Costa Concordia, the, the ship that I think it was in 2012, ran aground in Italy. And everybody was commended for fleeing from the, the ship, right? I mean, anybody who could get off the ship when it ran aground was great, except for one person, right? The captain. The captain fled the ship and left people on board. And in most countries, there are laws against that. So right now, he's 16 years in jail for having run the ship aground and fled the scene. Because we all know that the one who's in charge, the one who's in authority, gets held to higher accountability. And if, if that person is not leading well, if they neglect their job, then there will be shipwreck. And it will cause harm, as it did, and death to many, many people. So, so we understand that sense of judgment. We even have it in our own laws in our world that somebody who's leading others, somebody's in charge, needs to have that sense of, of care and caution. And so a couple of applications that come out of this for us are, first of all, and this is the most obvious one, don't be that false teacher, right? Don't be that false teacher. Now, you say, well, I'm not a teacher. But actually, I think all of us find ourselves at one place or another in the role of teacher, whether it be with our children or the people that we're ministering to. We, we, we all find ourselves, or even just teaching ourselves what it means to follow God. We're all in that position at some point. And the message for us is strive to connect what you teach and what you think about God to His revelation in Scripture. It's a simple message. Somebody was telling me about houses and, and, and how houses are fastened to the foundation. And these days, because of earthquakes and, and things, what they do is they, they take the house and they take the top floor and bolt it to the second floor and then bolt the second floor into the foundation so that when the earthquake comes and the house shakes, 
right? The house stays where it's supposed to be. And the same thing is true of our faith, right? We're up here talking about these things and ideas and concepts, but if we don't do the hard work of fastening it into the foundation, which is the revelation from God, then when the challenges come, when the earthquakes come, when the difficulties come in life, we will be shaken or shipwrecked or however you want to say it. So don't be that person who speculates on what is rather than going to the revelation of God, the precious revelation of God, and speaking from that. And then he says, don't follow that person either. And I would like us to reflect on the influences of our lives. I said this last week, that in some ways living in the Bay Area is like snorkeling on a very rocky beach, a very dangerous beach. Because we have all these influences coinciding together. We have all of these forces coming together. We have all of these different philosophies meshing together in one place. And there's a beauty to that. And there's there's a wonder to it. And I relish that aspect of it. But it's also... Uh, a dangerous beach in the sense that we're marinating in all kinds of different uh, worldviews and philosophies, and we need to think through what we're receiving and not just accept everything, speculative knowledge, as true. There are very wise, wonderful, cool, hip, innovative people all around us, and sometimes when they speak with great charisma, we say, oh, that must be true. But the question isn't whether they're charismatic or they say it. Well, the question is, what does God say? What does the scripture say? What has God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ and the scripture that testifies to him? So we need to take care to marinate, to soak in the word, to soak in the scripture so that we don't run aground, right? So that we don't get bumped off the foundation. So the first one is is this, simply that speculation is a trap. The second piece is that revelation is life and freedom. See, false teaching works because it promises much but delivers little. You see that in the text? There are a couple of uh, um, images that Peter uses. He talks about waterless springs and he talks about mists. And the waterless spring is, and you've got to remember, this is in desert area, and so a spring is a very, very precious thing to have. And you know where the springs are and you're, you're, you're dying of thirst because you've been walking all day, and you get to the spring, and you're expecting to find water, and it's dry. That's what false teaching is like, he says. You're hungering and thirsting for knowledge, and you go, and it ends up being dry. Or it's like a mist, he says, like waterless springs in verse 17, and mists driven by the storm. And we don't necessarily see this phenomenon, but, but oftentimes the mist would come in, in that region and, and it would be kind of a promise of, of, um, a, 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 of water that you would need, of life. But it would be blown away and oftentimes, uh, meteorologically, mist is a harbinger of hot weather. And so, so the, the false teaching is like that. It's like a mist that, that, that entices you with what, to quench your thirst but ends up being blown away and actually being a harbinger of dryness. And then he goes on to say, when, when we go to the false teaching and we seek in it some sort of fulfillment and we don't find it, one temptation that we have is to then pursue it all the more. To try harder. To try to find fulfillment where God said there will be no fulfillment. 
And so we try harder in that. And, and then we get, we get overcome by it. And this is how habits start. It says, verse 19, they promise them freedom. The false teaching promises freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so this continual search in the dry spring for fulfillment creates a kind of enslavement that overwhelms us. We find us ourselves in that state. And this is happening to the young believers that are there in, 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 that, are, that are in the church. You know, they've just kind of stepped away from there's these, these harmful practices in their lives, whether it be sexual sin, whether it be, you know, and, and great, don't misunderstand me. God loves sex, right? There's a lot of sex in this text. God loves sex, but he gave us sex to be put in a partic- to be utilized in a particular way. There's something these young believers who are just pulling away from this brokenness are being called back into it through this false teaching. That's something I can relate to, definitely. I came to faith at a young age, but I was not, and, and I'm sure a lot of this is due to my own failure, but I was not mentored in the faith, even over years and years and, and decade maybe even or so. And I, in fact, had one youth leader who told me uh, about uh, how sex works and what he said was directly opposite to what the Bible says. I was about probably 16 years old. Now, you don't need to tell a 16-year-old boy much, you know, in the way of getting him off, off base with respect to sexuality, right? And so that stuck with me, that false teaching, for years, for years, and had an effect, had an impact on my life. And these new believers are experiencing that same thing. Uh, they're in the midst, and, 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 like, and, and, you, and, and they're going back to like a dog with vomit or a sow in the mud, what they have just escaped. And the solution, though, is in verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them. There's, there's overtones in verse 20 of chapter 1, verse 3, which says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's where freedom lies. That's where life is found. Is in true knowledge of God. Pursuing the true knowledge of God. That's where, that's where we, 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 we center our hope and our joy and our freedom and our life. Not in the waterless springs. The false teaching. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. That's what Spurgeon said following Scripture. And that's true. Scripture is the source for that knowledge which brings life and freedom to us. And so then the question becomes, by way of application, how come... We don't go to that source more. How come we don't plug in to the source of the knowledge of God? And in the time that I have, I just want to mention briefly two reasons why I think we're not plugging in to the source like we could. The first one is a practical one, and I'll just say this it's your phone. It's your phone. 
and it's the internet, and it's your email, and it's your texts, and it's everything else. Nicholas Carr wrote a book called The Shallows, and the subtitle is What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And he says this, and, and this isn't just sort of speculation, this is uh, rational sort of research on what the, the texting and the internet does to our brains. It actually rewires. They've, they've done studies and x-rays. and it's, We're rewiring our brains because of the constant interruption and the constant nagging. Um, he says, essentially, we're becoming like mice who push the lever in the trap to get, be dis, get the next sort of dispensing of whatever it is that we want. And what that does is it inhibits your ability to have long periods of concentration. And if you want to really love the Word of God, I just tell you, you've got to sit with it a little bit. You've got to marinate in it a little bit. You've got to protect your ability to think directionally over time without interruption so that you can sit in the Word of God. He says this, about our current state. He says, the internet seizes our attention only to scatter it. Love that. You know that? You're, you're not interested in what's, you know, what's on the internet. You're just interested in what else is on the internet, right? So you just keep clicking on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, and before you know it, a half hour is gone when you sat down to read a book or something. Um, Stanford researcher says this, intensive multitaskers are suckers for irrelevancy. In other words, irrelevant things come along, and if you're a multitasker, and the more you multitask, and the more that you allow that, the less you're able to filter out whether it's relevant or not, and you become a sucker for it. And so your life gets spent and wasted, I don't say that lightly, wasted pursuing things that don't ultimately matter, Right? So there's a practical thing, reason, and I see this, I'm more and more I'm convinced, part of the reason people are not able to get into the Word is because it's this incessant sort of grasping, of, and I'm, I'm just, I'm the worst, okay, so this is something God's working on in me too, this incessant grasping of the phone and the internet and all the things keeping us from what we most need, it's a, it's, it's a dry spring, it's a dry spring. The second one is conceptual. We have an impoverished view, I believe, of Scripture. We see reading Scripture as a chore, something to check off your to-do list, right? And, and the only thing, if we do read it, we get is a list of do's and don'ts. Like, don't do this and do do this, and, and that's not very appealing to us, and so we don't pick it up to spend time with it. But that's a conceptual problem, because Scripture is so much more than all that. Scripture is a world for exploration. It's filled with, it's a rich tapestry of human beings who are facing all the kinds of circumstances that we face. And when we face those, we can go to Scripture and find a guide for us. Somebody who's already been through what we're going through, and we can hang on to that person. One time I had to preach a funeral, and it was really challenging. And I'm searching through Scripture, and I come across this little story of this guy named Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. And, and all of a sudden, as I'm reading it, the funeral and the life of this person just opens up to me, right? This little story. God has already placed people in all throughout the Scripture who have been where you are. Let them guide you. Put your arm around them 
over days and weeks and study them so that it can shape the way that you move through this world. Scripture is a map and a compass to get your bearings so many times. And this is not my doing or wisdom or ability. This is God's faithfulness and grace. I'll read the scripture and and I'll be in the midst of difficulty or I'll be facing a really crazy day and I'll get a verse that just gives me sort of a true north for that day. And it's always different. But it's a verse that says, you know, focus on this. Maybe it's humility. Maybe it's on trusting God. Whatever it is. And all day long, I'll just keep that verse in my head. And it keeps me focused. It's a map and a compass for me by God's grace. Scripture is the great story of the whole creation of the world. It gives meaning to why we exist. The reason, let me tell you, why I'm a Christian is because when I look at all the different worldviews out there, and I look at what the Scripture teaches about the history of this world and the future of this world, no other worldview I have encountered seems to account for all the nuance and the dynamism of this creation, this world that I experience. No other worldview accounts for all of the nuance of it like the this redemptive story of Jesus Christ. Gives us meaning. Why are we here? And then, moreover, it's a sweet call from a loved one. Let's not forget that. It's about intimacy. I was so tired a few months back and I went off on a retreat day and I just was at the end of myself and I picked up the story of Elijah and what he did in tiredness. And I, I, I start to well up just thinking about now how the Lord met me intimately in that moment to show me his love for me, to remind me of what's true. That's what this scripture is. It's not just a list of to-dos. It's all that and so much more. It's intimacy. It's a map and a compass. It's a rich tapestry. And so the invitation for you today is to put down your phone and pick up the Bible. And I don't want this to be a law for you of any sort. I want this just to be something beautiful, a wonderful opportunity to know God. Verse 19 in chapter 1. And we have something more sure after talking about the very presence of Jesus Christ in the world, Peter goes on to say in verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, that's what we now have as the scripture, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So you ask, what is the proper framework in which we should think about the reading of scripture and the role of it in our lives? My wife took off on Friday with our two girls to Haiti. Um, pray for them. And they're in a, working in an orphanage for a week. Pray for me, because I drove back from the airport, and I was like, what did I just do? I just put all three of my precious women on a plane to go to Haiti, and I feel like out of control. Um, but I'll tell you this. Between now and when they get back, We are going to be communicating as much as possible, and it's not easy. There's just a few places where she can be where we we can communicate. But yesterday and last night, we were texting as we could. That was about the only thing we could do, texting back and forth to communicate. But I'll tell you this, too. When she gets off that plane, I am not going to run up to her and start texting her, okay? We are going to embrace. We are going to, and that embrace will be informed by the information that we've shared over the, the dangerous moments that they got through, they already had one, and, 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 and the, the issues that have happened and the people that I've seen through the texting, that's going to inform my embrace to some degree. 
And the same thing Peter is saying is going to happen with you and God. Jesus is going to come back someday. And you're not going to need this anymore. You're going to toss it out. Because you are going to embrace Him. But He's not here in that way right now. And so what you have is this. That's the framework in which you approach this book. That this is the communication you have for now until He comes back. So spend time with Him. That's the invitation. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the knowledge of God. It's the true spring rather than the dry one. It's the mist that actually brings rain rather than the one that dissipates and leaves you thirsty. So I invite you this morning to drink. Lord, we all are thirsty. You have given us living water. There's only one thing that needs to happen is we need to go to the source. So help us to get there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.